Welcome to episode 48 of Board Gamers Anonymous. This week, we're going to talk about Stefan Fell's brand new Euro game, La Isla. Also, Balloon Cup, Imperial, Istanbul, In the Shadow of the Emperor, and all the brand new news, reviews, and acquisition disorders that are hitting us this week. to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Anonymous, a podcast about gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Drew. And where is everybody else? I don't... Where, are they hiding? Are, are they even around? Where, Anthony? I don't know. I think there's other things in life besides board games. I don't get it. No. No, I checked, and there really isn't. So I don't know why they're not here, but... Um, Anthony and Daniel are not with us today, but being the huge gamers that they are, they're out at specific locations gaming with gamers out there. So we have Anthony on location in Brooklyn and Daniel somewhere in the mysterious areas of the South. We won't say because you never know where Daniel is. So, But welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. We're so glad to have you here. I hope your Thanksgiving was outstanding. So on this podcast, we got some really interesting things for you. Our feature review will be Stefan Feld's La Isla, a outstanding new Euro game that you have to listen to. But we'll get back to that a little bit later. So let's start off. Shout it from the table, Drew. Shout it from the tabletops. <laughs> Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Shout it from the tabletop. We got some hard news for you guys. Um, Last week, we talked about Hasbro's uh, interest in DreamWorks. Remember uh, talking about that? The deal died. Hasbro decided not to go ahead. What I didn't know at the time was why the deal died, and it was all because of Disney, of course. It's always the mouse. The mouse was in the house. Disney, as you know, has a deal or a couple deals already with Hasbro to create toys from some of the Disney movies. If Hasbro went and bought Disney's competitor, DreamWorks, then Hasbro would miss out on all that lucrative uh, merchandising with Disney. So that's the reason why Hasbro is not the multi-industrial uh, corporation it wanted to be. Are you sad about that, Chris? I know you wanted Hasbro to be even bigger than it is now. Yeah, I mean, you grew up with Hasbro. I mean, there's there's few things as a child that you know about the corporate world or that, you know, if you did work in a corporation, that's the place you'd want to work. And Hasbro definitely was one of those places that was always synonymous with fun. Yeah. It's uh, everything that we that we knew as children. It's all part of that world now, the Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley. I, I call that Milton Brothers, by the way. All of those games from my past, they're just Milton Brother games. Um, combine the two. Um, there is something else in the news that I thought was really interesting. It's not... Nothing we can do about, but this one company, Terrible Games out of England, has been creating games that are touching on sensitive areas to Americans, the war on terror and on the role of uh, religion in our lives. They came up with one game called War on Terror, obviously, where you could choose to either be the terrorists or fighting the terrorists. 
And the way the game is structured is the game often ends with terrorists knocking over governments and basically taking over the world. The Hen Commandments is a religion creation game where all the players try to build a religion and build followers. And you, the characters are all chickens, so that makes it seem harmless. That, that's going to be released next year, 2015. How would you feel about playing a game called War on Terror? If, that was, if you could be a terrorist, is that like too sensitive, too soon? I think it's definitely one of those situations where it's too soon. You know, we play a lot of different themes and games, and these are games, right? So there's been this discussion worldwide about do games affect people's personalities, behavior? Does it change society? Should you be playing violent games? Should you be playing certain themes? And, you know, sometimes when it's a fantasy, sci-fi, something completely made up, something that does not exist, you know, it takes away the, you know, the blunt of what's going on here it's not it's not that you know stark and in your face it's just something like oh this would be interesting to explore this or destroy these aliens but when it's something this close to home and something where people um, are losing their lives right now not just in america but around the world it's definitely a theme that i would not want to play and i would not recommend because you know honestly it legitimizes this idea that there is, you know, there's two sides to this type of conflict as far as you can play either side, and that's completely fine. It's completely reasonable. If you want to kill people and terrorize, you know, families um, and murder the innocent, you know, that's understandable and reasonable, and, and that just is not true. And while it's still a game and we can still, you know, objectively look at it, it's not a theme that we should put in young people's hands, and honestly, it's not a theme we should put in anyone's hands. It's just when it comes to real life and death, don't put that out there. Please do, do us a favor. But it's it's not what you would call a violent game, not like a video game would be. It's it's a strategy game. So you're just saying you know, putting yourself in the mind of the terrorist isn't really a, a, a valid approach to a game. It's just one of those themes that is very concrete. It's something that's happened in a – not just in a kind of historical sense of like this is something that's happened historically. It played out. You can play a role, you know, like we talked about in Freedom, the Underground Railroad. Like you can play a role in this game. Obviously, you want to be the good guy, but, you know, maybe you do want to play the bad guy in some games too, and that's not a bad thing. But when it's a – a present threat, you know, when you're doing something in a game that's actually happening somewhere in the world that's that concrete and that, you know, effective, there's just, you know, honestly, Drew, there's just better themes out there. And most of the games that we do play, as much as we love themes, you know, the mechanics can kind of be reskinned 15 different ways and just as good. So if you're trying to sell me a strategy game, just reskin that for me because, you want me to enjoy the mechanics and the gameplay and the social dynamics there? I'm not enjoying killing innocent people. It's just it's not going to work for me, no matter how you do it. You made a good point about freedom, the Underground Railroad. Um, it it's, works as a cooperative game. It can only be a cooperative game. You can't imagine rewriting that game so you can take the role of the slave catchers. It just It's not right um, any way you look at it. Um, so I, I get your point there. The interesting thing I found was this game, War on Terror, came out 
2006, quite a long time ago, but Fox News is just now making a big deal about that. I guess maybe in connection with this game about religion coming out next year. Um, they, they put uh, they put the founder of Terror Bowl games on the spot on TV, but he stood up for his games. Um, and uh, we'll post the link to that Fox News uh, video in the in my show notes. I also want to get on to a different publisher. <laughs> Speaking of violent games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Very few games, uh, table games that were violent. Wizards of the Coast put out plans to create two storylines a year for Dungeons and Dragons. They're not going to do more than that. They don't want to overload. They want to try and nurture this and not not have any overkill. But they talked about bringing back the open game license. Did you ever hear that in connection with the earlier versions of Dungeons and Dragons, the open game license? I'm not too sure. Is that where everyone else was able to use their mechanics in their own game? Um, They were able to create... um, Dungeon and Dragons related materials for their campaigns. Yes. Um, create as much as they wanted uh, and without any problem at all. That that was in the first three editions. In the fourth edition, they create, They came out with a new license, um, which pretty much co-opted. But the open game license is still in effect even now for versions one, two, and three. The question is, will version five have that open game license? They seem to be indicating one of the things you got to watch out for, <laughs> I read the uh, frequently asked questions about their open game license on the WATC site. They can take anything you create for Dungeons and Dragons, they can take it and use it and put it in a book and sell it and make money off something you did and you can't do anything about it. That's the open game license. So just keep in mind, you, you might go through all the bother of making something and, and it might they might use it for uh, – their future uses. But you know what? We all benefit. We've got some news from ICB2 about the hobby business. They're a great website about the business of gaming. They did an interesting report about Books A Million. Uh, They have 260 stores around the country. Have you heard of them, Chris? Yeah, they're a great outfit. Yeah, well, their whole name is Books, but in the past year, they've been branching out into other things. Um, A lot of uh, manga they're selling instead of just remaindered books or overstocks. And they also start to get into strategy games and toys and puzzles. And ICV2 reported that Books a Million has turned around their loss from the previous year, and they're actually increasing in sales, maybe about 2% over last year. But still, that's a lot better than 9% loss. And a lot of that was being driven by toys, puzzles, and strategy games. So have you ever thought about walking into a Books A Million to see what games they had on sale? I never did, and now I will because that's that's outstanding. They usually have a very large and, and deep collection of books, and usually you can find something there. So I'm really interested to see what types of games they carry because that would kind of open up a, a brand-new market. Well, you know, I think they're copying the um, playbook of Barnes & Noble. You realize you can't compete on equal terms with Amazon, so you just have to branch out. And it may work for Barnes & Noble. It may work for Books A Million. And it will certainly work for us. We've we we got to get in the car and head on down there, Drew. <laughs> Books A Million. Can we stop the podcast and go now? Because now, now that you said that, I really want to go find out. <laughs> I have no idea where there is one around here. I, I see them in the suburbs. But I don't know if there's one like – I do remember one in Boston. I remember one outside Philadelphia. Uh, I don't know where there was one in New York. We'll have to look that up. It's not like it stopped when it came to Barnes & Noble sales. We went everywhere. So 
I think we'd be fine with driving an hour or so if they had a great collection. Yeah, there's only 260 stores, so um, that that may work in their favor, the fact that they're so rare. People are going to go out of their way to find them. Yeah, and I think, you know, bookstores are so much akin to board game stores. There's something about the smell of that paper and cardboard. It just it gives such a unique aroma to a, a business when you smell those old books, when you smell that, just that cardboard smell. I can't explain it. But if you're, a, you know, if you're a book fan like I am or if you're a board game fan and you just walk into that store, a comic book store also has that smell, obviously, where it's just like that aroma of that paper and it's just it's – so, it's so intoxicating and you just feel like home. You can just walk into a bookstore, sit down, and you feel like, ah, oh, I'm here. This is a grand library like you know, every world should have. So, yeah, absolutely. I don't know. Are you bringing back memories of childhood? Because I can remember thoughts of, you know, first day of school every year, and it's the smell of paper, fresh, fresh notebooks and textbooks and that smell of papers everywhere, fresh paper. Yes. It's a childhood thing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and, and an adult thing, and a <laughs> it's an everything thing, because I think once you get hooked on that smell, there, you know, you can go to a bakery, you can go to – you know, fine restaurants. There's nothing like the smell of a bookstore. Oh, awesome. Speaking about the great smells about bookstores, the, the paper, the ink, just, you know, brings me back to one of my favorite childhood memories, which is going to bookstores as a child and picking up the brand new Choose Your Own Adventure book. Now, that was so much part of my childhood. This is before hobby gaming became a big thing. This is before games and even video games had become such a huge thing where you had these very simple little books with this beautiful kind of, you know, evocative cover of this different world. And each book, and they were numbered, each book had a different world or a different theme from outer space to under the sea to giant ants, just really radically different stuff from book to book, male and female characters. So it was really diverse. And it was so much part of my childhood. It was so much fun. You know, you you – you would open the book, you would read the first couple of pages, and it would say, you know, now you have a choice. Do you want to go, you know, you hear a noise. Do you want to go open the door and see what the noise is, or do you want to hide behind the couch? And, you know, if, if you want to do, you know, open the door, go to page 12. If you want to hide behind the couch, go to page 30. And you were kind of afraid, so you, you held your thumb on that page. So just in case it was bad stuff, you could go back. But that's not really keeping with the uh, spirit of the books. But they were outstanding books, and – you know, it's really, you know, a sad thing to say that the author of these popular children's books, Raymond Montgomery, died on November 9th. He was 78 years old and uh, not just from a, you know, a book kind of feel, but for a hobby gaming feel. So much, I think, of what we know now and what we experience now as these very thematic story games comes from Choose Your Own Adventure books. They... Um... They really were in parallel with Dungeons and Dragons. It gave they really were in parallel to those books, to Dungeons and Dragons and the group adventure. It gave you a chance if you were really the timid sort, to uh, have that same feeling, but on your own. Some of the books, I, I don't think the ones necessarily by Raymond, but some of the um, copycats, even included very simple um, uh, melee rules where you roll the dice and see what happens. So. They were great at recreating that feel, that adventuring feel. And I think they they would also serve as a good introduction to that. You got a taste for it, and then maybe you wanted to go further into role-playing. 
So it was a wonderful introduction, and I did spend a lot of hours in bookstores back in the uh, late 70s and 80s looking over these and buying some. I, I bought at least a couple dozen over the years, so definitely good memories for me. Yeah, the series sold over 250 million copies from 1979 to 1999. And I was responsible for about 25 of those. So Every time I see them in a store, it just brings back such great memories. I'm sure that uh, that his memory was invoked at the recent Chicago Toy and Game Fair. Uh, it's a big convention, a true convention, where they sit down and talk about their trade. Um, they they remember a lot of people who've spent their lives in the toy and game industries and those who have died. Uh, they have a series of awards there that they give out. They gave out a Lifetime Achievement Award. To Michael Koner, uh, one of the Koner brothers, they had this game uh, company for a number of years. They, they created Trouble. Do you remember playing Trouble with the pop Yes, absolutely. They created that. Uh, they got a Lifetime Achievement Award. So it, it's great to see an event like that that remembers those who have spent their lives in the hobby industry. They also uh, um, had a lovely tribute to the inventor of Operation, John Spinello, who's been having um, – uh, physical problems that he'd been having to deal with medically. So it's, it's it's a great chance for the toy and game industry to come together and celebrate what they do. So I know the New York Fair, they have a toy fair coming up, but that's just a, a, a hobnob, a place to meet and buy new trinkets and things. But uh, the Chicago is, Fair is a true convention of the old sort. I would love to go there sometime just to sit down with some of these industry people and, and soak up the, the atmosphere. Oh, they have they, – at the, at the Toy and Game Awards, they, um, they do award inventors, and, and they talk about game inventors, not designers. I like that about them. <laughs> but especially up-and-comers, especially young people, they throw the focus on, you know, where the future is going to be. So there's a lot of, a lot of brilliance out there. Finally, the last bit I want to talk about, and this is such a big chunk of the news, um, if, if you get any sort of uh, email from other people in the hobby or read any blogs, you, you've read about a couple articles in The Guardian in England about board games. The reason why you've seen a couple reports is because The Guardian for the entire week has been all about board games. There are no fewer than eight articles that they've published. And I'm going to have links to all eight of them in our show notes. Uh, now, the reason why they focused on this is they're making such a huge deal in, in England about London's first board game cafe. It's like it's, it's culture changing there, a sign of how important board games are. So the Guardian is doing this whole huge series on it. Do you think that America is going to go gaga for board game cafes like Europe and England have and even Canada? Is it our turn next? I certainly hope so. <laughs> it would be great if they did. I, you know, I think there's been a pushback over the last couple of years against the alienation of having your phone and how you can connect to people. It's great. It's fast. You can click. You can send messages, and it's outstanding. But having a place where you could just sit down and enjoy each other's company and get to know each other and, you know, playing a game with each other lets you know a lot about someone. So – I could see this happening. I mean, it's happening everywhere right now where people are playing games at Starbucks and, you know, it's not a far stretch to believe that this would be the next step. You know, I keep hearing, uh, seeing more reports about board games, board game cafes. So I'm sure in next week's From the Tabletop, 
I'll have more to talk about it, but that is all we have time for for this week's Shout It From The Tabletop. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game, nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game and the expansion and the promos and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So the base game, the expansion, the promos, and the upgraded components. See? That's not too much. But maybe, I don't know, maybe you might need the expansion. All right, so let's talk about our Acquisition Disorder. What do you got, Drew? Hey, um, it's it's a game that I don't acquire because it's online for free, but I haven't played it yet, and I really, really, really want to play. That's it. i got to have it on my computer. That's I want to acquire it. Um, it's Hanabi. Have you ever heard of that game? I have. Have you ever played it, though, without anyone cheating? I haven't. No, this is why I'm looking forward to it. Online, you can't cheat. So um, Board Game Arena. They go by the initials BGA, just like we do, so don't confuse the two. Board Game Arena has it now, Hanabi. Uh, I can't wait to play because I'm curious just how much tougher it will be when you can't send subtle clues to your other partners. If subtle, you mean hint, hint, wink, wink, pick this card kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love when I play I play with people and they're like, oh, I'm great. I, I've completed everything. I, I'm perfect at this game. I'm like, really? Are you really? Yeah, yeah. I'm like, do you follow the rules? They're like, yeah, I follow the rules. It's fine. Yeah. I'm like, and then you play with them, and they're like, there's like 15 or 20 different little hints that they're giving. I'm like, no, yeah. you're not playing that game, right? Uh, no. Well, I don't, I don't know if they have this private message function, too, where you could do the same thing, basically send little hints by private message. But, no, I'd love to try it and just see how really, really tough it is when you just – you can't even look at other people, just what their cards are. So I want to try that out. Well, I got one, too. We were just recently, our last episode, we were talking about the DC Deck Builder co-op game versus the Legendary co-op game. And DC Deck Builder, because Cryptozoic is totally feeding our addiction, is releasing the DC Comics deck building game Forever Evil. Now, this is one of the new 52 versions where you actually get to play, wait for this, as the bad guys. So huh. all of your favorite villains are here, and you get to play with them. You'll get the big cards. This is a full box expansion, and then you'll fight those annoying good do-gooders, right? So you get to play with Lex Luthor, Catwoman, Bizarro, you know, and so many of the other favorite <laughs> characters from that universe. And I'm just itching to play this because it really just never gets dull for me. I don't know what it is. I, I know it's a simple mechanic. I know it's nothing – much in the box, but it's fun, it's flavorful, it's my favorite potato chip. <laughs> right, going to be addicted. I have a feeling you're going to bring it to the table soon. I enough. will. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I, I read uh, an awful lot of blogs, and I'm always looking for board game information online. Um, always coming across, especially international. I love learning about games around the world. Don't know if I'll ever get to play them, but I keep reading about these games um, – a couple weeks ago, I heard about something in Germany that they had back in the communist days, and I would have loved to have played that, a game that made fun of the communism. Um, but I just found out about a new game out of Poland that does the same thing. It's called Regulation, the coupons game. The coupons refer to rationing, and it, it suddenly struck me that that would be a great theme even for an American game because we had our own rationing during World War II. Um, 
the difficulty of having just a few coupons and, and how do you use them to get enough food to feed your family and trading coupons to other people um, or, or finding a way to earn more coupons. That would be a great game. But they did create that in a communist setting in Poland. And they put a little uh, sarcastic humor in it, too. So it's the sort of thing where I would love to get my hands on that and play it and see if it couldn't be adapted to a more historical setting in America. It's called Regulation, a coupon game out of Poland. And uh, I'd love to get my hands on it. So another acquisition disorder that I have in our comic book universe kind of feel is Sentinels of the Multiverse Wrath of the Cosmos. So this is the co-op game that has a comic book universe playing out in their board games, which is an outstanding idea. And once again, kind of goes back to your choose your own adventure type of theme. So this expansion set brings in kind of like your Guardians of the Universe kind of thing. So you'll be bringing in four new villains and two new comic book heroes and a bunch of new environments. It's Getting close to wrapping up, we'll maybe see – we'll definitely see at least one more expansion from this whole universe. Maybe a little couple of other little minor things, but Sentinels of the Multiverse from Greater, Greater Than Games has talked about this will eventually come to an end, and the story will be written once and for all, and we won't see any new expansions. So grab it while you can. I, I find that hard to believe. There's always more expansions. <laughs> always. I know. That's what they say, so we'll uh, see. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, just like movies. Oh, there's no more sequels. This was the last sequel. Yeah. And now, at the table with BGA. A game I've been playing a lot on my, on my laptop from Yukata. Um, great game website called Balloon Cup. It's one of the more recent additions to the website. And it's a great little... Um, a card game, table game, too, if uh, you can get a hold of a copy. Um, I've been playing by myself, so it's just easier to do it online. It's an awesome card uh, hand management game where it, it's very similar to just a regular standard deck of cards. You have five different suits from 1 to 13, and you're, you're trying to earn cubes of five different colors. Some of the cubes you earn by playing the highest combination of cards and others you earn by playing the lowest combination of cards. So you have to decide whether to play your cards on yourself or play them on uh, the other person. You can do that. If, if you're trying to get the lowest cards and you have a high card in your hand, play it on the other guy and set him up. So there's a lot of combinations. You've got different places to play your cards, um, different values, uh, different Different decisions all throughout the game. It's constantly changing. And if they're just two people, very simple. In, in a face-to-face game, it can go by in half an hour. Um, I'd love to sit down and play it face-to-face with somebody because now I'm ready. I've practiced enough. I'm ready. Balloon Cup. It's a great game. I'm addicted. Excellent. Well, one of the games I was able to hit the table with is the 2014 Kennerspiel winner, Istanbul. Ah. So... We've talked about this a lot, and I'm really glad to have the opportunity to play this. Thanks to Dave and everybody there for bringing this to the table. Now, in this game, you are going to be a merchant that's going around this grand bazaar and trying to pick up rubies in the game. So as you move around different spots, you'll be adding things to your wheelbarrow, and then there will be other markets where you'll be able to sell the things in your wheelbarrow in order to gain coins and eventually to gain the rubies that will win you the game. 
outstanding product here. You're looking at great components, out, great artwork. It's a light game. It's a good entry-level game. It's a lot of fun. It has a variable kind of map setup because each of the different spots that you can land, each of the different locations can kind of be randomly placed. So, you know, it's a lot of fun. You take your little merchant and you kind of move around and he leaves his workers behind. And then you can kind of go back and pick them up. It's a lot of fun. Um, like I said, it's not a heavy game. So if you're looking for something that's going to, you know, keep a hobby board gamer kind of satisfied, this may not be for you. But for family and for friends, this is a good game. Awesome. I'd love to give it a shot. Um, one other, if, if since we're talking about games we played recently, one other game I really enjoyed, I don't get out often enough, but it has a unique uh, mechanic that I, <laughs> I want to keep playing it. In the Shadow of the Emperor um, from 2004. It's out of print right now, but it's actually easily available on Board Game Geek's Marketplace. So you can find a copy fairly cheaply. It's, it's a worker placement, area control, set in the medieval times, uh, Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, the different players try to win the positions as electors to choose the next emperor. And so you're trying to put forth your candidate to be elector. The, the characters in the game that you're working with age from the years from the age 15 to 25 to 35 and then 45, and then after that they're dead and taken off the table. So it has a unique age progression mechanic that, that I just love. You install someone at 15, and then four turns later they're dead and out of there. So you have to keep bringing more people into the game. You have to marry your young people off to uh, gain more power, to get more influence in the game, and at the same time, you're choosing different actions to give yourself different powers uh, in different parts of the Holy Roman Empire. Each section, each geographical area gives you a different power. So a lot of fun. And it's that aging mechanic that just is really cool for my way of thinking. In the shadow of the emperor. Outstanding. I like that. So once again, another game that I have to thank to Dave, Sean, and Ed. I got a chance to play Imperial. Now, this is the really well-known game from 2006 by Matt Gertz. If you haven't played it, you're kind of missing out because this game has so much flavor to it. And just it has this epic theme that you're playing through. So you're playing Europe, and you start out with these bonds. So let me kind of explain a little bit simpler because this game has so much depth to it that it probably could take several podcasts to go over it. But in a very short version... You get bonds that are related to different countries. If you control the most bonds in that country by money, then you'll be able to control that, that country as far as what actions it takes. And there's a number of different actions you can take on this rondelle. So you have – you can build a factory, and then once that factory is built, you can production build ships and troops for free. You can then maneuver them. You can invest in order to get money from them and to give money to everybody who put money in to begin with. You can import new troops and ships and taxation, which actually helps the country move up the track and makes your bonds worth more money. Now, this game has a little bit of a heaviness to it because it has a, a stock market to it as well as a victory point kind of counter that will determine what the value of your stocks are worth at the end of the game. Once it hits 25, one of the countries, then that game will end and you'll count up your stocks and get money based upon that, and whoever has the most money wins the game. It plays similar to Airlines Europe, where there is a large board mechanic that's taking place 
But really what you're keeping your eyes on is the stocks because the stocks are really what's going to win you the game. Imperial's a lot of fun. It's a very long game. It, it takes at least, I would say, two and a half to three and a half hours. Wow. Um, it does gear up towards the end once the countries are kind of powerful. But it's a very long game. It's an interesting game. It's something not to enter lightly. And unfortunately, the player guides <laughs> that come with the game, and I know for you, Drew, that's a big thing, player guides. Yeah. The player guides have some errors in them. So when we were playing through the game, there was some problems, and we had to go through Board Game Geek, thank God for Board Game Geek, that it had all of that information saying, hey, this game has a lot of problems in the rules, and this game is you know, very fiddly when it comes to the rules, so you really want to make sure that you're playing right from the start, and that's kind of hard to do. But Imperial is a, absolutely a play. If you have the opportunity to sit down with a large group of people, it plays up to six players. Oh, when did that come out? That came out in 2006. 2006. Wow, that's well before the Kickstarter era. That's the complaint about a lot of Kickstarter games is the rule books are flawed, but this would be for that. Yeah, the player guides are what's really flawed here. The, the rule book is just very confusing. Wow. Um, well, anyway, in spite of all that, you had me at Rondell. I will walk a mile <laughs> for a Rondell. Well, that sounds great. All right. So that's what's hitting our table. Let's get to the feature review, La Isla. And now, our feature review. This is Stefan Feld's brand new Euro game on the lighter side. So in La Isla, you will be building an island from these parts that kind of fit together, which makes brand new maps, which is outstanding. I love to see that. Now, the game is about capturing, hopefully in photography, these creatures like the dodo bird, which unfortunately has been wiped out, the golden toad, and many other creatures that you're going to try to take photos of in order to score victory points at the end of the game. Now, the board itself, as I said, is modular, so it kind of gets put together. You are going to have explorers, and there's eight per player. Now, you're not going to have all the explorers. You're not going to have all eight to begin with, but what you're going to do is during the game, you are going to be getting a card holder, and you are going to be getting three cards. Now, as the game goes on, you will be able to get new cards that will replace the other cards. And basically what you're doing is you're building a tableau of actions. So what's interesting about this game and what's really dynamic is that the cards have different effects. And that's what's really nice about this game. So on the top of the card, it has this special ability that you'll be able to play in the game. And what you'll do is you'll slide that in on the A slot. It also has on the bottom left, it has the cube that you're going to get. Now, cubes are very important because it's going to require two cubes in order to place one of your explorers in a, on a spot to help capture that creature. Now, on the right side, it's going to have the market. So it has a stock market type of feel where you're going to have these different creatures that you'll be able to move up the stock market so they're worth more points at the end of the game. There's five different creatures in this game, and by moving the stock market up, you'll be able to score additional points. Now, the stock market also counts as the final turn marker, too. So once it hits a certain number based upon the players, that will signal the final round. Now, the board, which is this round kind of island, 
you'll be placing your explorers on different spots that are denoted by the color, which matches the cubes, and there's also different symbols on those spots that match the different actions that you'll be able to take on your little personal action board. Now, this game has a lot of strategy to it as far as where do you place your guys because the creatures will be randomly placed on the board and based on the victory points. So, for example, if a toad is placed in a spot where there's three, then it's going to take three explorers surrounding that creature in order to capture it and then score those points. So once you've captured those creatures, let's say you have five toads, at the end of the game you'll look at the the stock market track, see what they are worth each, and you will score those victory points, as well as scoring victory points throughout the game. So La Isla offers a light strategy. It offers some blocking other players if they get to those spots before you do. But it's light, it's interesting, it's fun. But don't take my word for it. Let's see what Drew has to say. Oh, don't blame me. Um it's light. I, I want to jump on that word light because the components were very light. Um, sort of on the flimsy side, the score, the score tracker was very light and um, small, not enough room for your scoring pieces to fit on it. And the little fold, um, the, the panel that holds your cards seemed very light and flimsy, but not enough to really detract from the gameplay. It just made you be very careful about how you were placing your markers and how you're placing your cards. As long as you're careful of that, you're fine. The other components, especially the pieces that put the board together, are very solid and well-built. Um, so it's, I, I don't have a complaint there. The, the fact that they have all these well-built well interconnecting pieces really adds to the game's uh, replayability because they go together in, well, I saw one number. It was almost like, is it 10,000 different possibilities or 100,000? Um, anyway, some incredibly high number. So you're always going to have that replayability. And that's going to draw you back. It doesn't have an insanely high number of points like you're used to in Steffenfeld games. Almost a reasonable amount. And enough different ways to get those points as usual. I found... I had a tough time choosing sometimes whether to go for bonuses on animals I had already captured or go for bonuses on animals I had in my hand because each card you have will have an animal showing on it too. So you're, you're constantly having to make those choices, realizing that if you do boost up the stock market for animals you have, it's also going to boost it for everybody else who owns those same animals. So it's, it's constantly throughout the game you're making choices. And... Um, Unlike uh, what you would think of a game of this caliber, there's actually a little more interaction. Not an awful lot, but just enough because it's it's an area control thing. You're trying to capture an animal by surrounding it on all four sides, but someone can get their guys down before you do. So there's a race, a little bit of a race element to get some of these animals before other people swoop in and get it. That's why you can't play this game with less than four people because there was that element with the four of us, but I think with three people there's just too much territory and you wouldn't have that interaction. It wouldn't be as much fun. I love the fact that I had to look over my shoulder at people all the time. Yeah. For me, I would have to say that that's so true because you're going to have three spots to put your action cards and there are action cards that add other explorers and there's other action cards that allow you to place a fourth card. You're constantly replacing the actions in your tableau. 
So it's possible to have a brand new game each and every time. And as you were saying, Drew, you know, it is a race game because, you know, when you place your action card and you get your cubes and you move the market up, those things can happen simultaneously with other players. But when you place your explorer, that has to happen in turn order because that really determines a lot of the gameplay here. Yeah. You're allowed you're allowed to put two explorers on any one space. That's fine. And the problem with that is that that someone can swoop in where you already are, get a bonus for putting a guy an explorer where someone already is and uh, complete the circuit and capture an animal that you were going to try and capture on the next turn. So there is a lot of that, a lot of take that in this game. And and you did mention about the powers, the constantly shifting powers you required every single turn throughout the game to add a power from your hand, which means you cannot just sit on three great powers and hold them for the whole game. You're constantly trying to sw- having to swap them out. So it, it keeps the game from changing and, and prevents one person from having such a, a really lucky stretch of cards that they hold on to because you can't. you got to keep changing. So there's a good game flow here. So, Drew, is this, is this a buy for you? Is it a play? Is it a dodge or the dreaded burn? Um, no, it's actually better better than Stefan Feld games that I'm used to. Um, I, I like the replayability, and and it's actually a fairly quick game once you get into it. I would I <laughs> I'm not a black and white kind of guy, but I would say a buy a soft buy. Um, Stefan Feld high scoring games are not my favorite, but I I could see myself getting this and sharing it with people. For me, I'm a huge Feld fan, so anything that comes at Stefan Feld, i got to get my hands on. This game is a buy for me. With the caveat, as Drew said, this is a light game. This is an entry-level game. This is something to play with family and friends, which is good, right? Because, you know, Feld, when you drop down Trajan, it scares people. Yeah. (laughs) It's not as fiddly. It's not as high point, but it's not as deep and complex and as true felt as generally I like to see, but I'm really, really glad that he brought something out for the gateway market to kind of bring people into the heavy Euro games. Maybe not not a gateway overall to gaming in general, but for someone who's played some games and they don't know Stefan Feld, you could say, hey, I want to introduce you to Stefan Feld. You might like this game. That's perfect, Drew. I absolutely agree. And now, our final round. Final round honors the National Day of the Horse. This is an actual observance because this is congressional. A bunch of senators from out west, or these, these states with all these horses roaming around, they got together, put out a petition 10 years ago, and they've been doing it every year. It's the National Day of the Horse coming up in the beginning of December. So I thought that we would have a show Honoring the horse in games, and I'll give you an example. One of the earliest games in in my youth, uh, one of the 3M series of um, sporting simulations was Win, Place, and Show with the little uh, plastic statues of horses. And you roll the dice, and, and you move the horses around, and you have to pick the horse and place bets. And it was a fun little game. It's silly in the long run, I mean, now looking back on it. But uh, I think I could still enjoy playing that game. A lot of fun. Win, place, and show. That's great. Now, you can't have, I mean, you could try, but you really can't have a discussion about horses and 
Ponies without, and I'm sorry about this, Drew, but you got to have it. you got to have the My Little Pony collectible <laughs> card game. It's a thing. It's a thing. Not a brony myself, but I have friends who are bronies and, you know, yeah. power to the brony there. And it's actually a very good CCG game. And that's surprising but outstanding that another CCG is out there that's high quality. It's a lot of fun. It is collectible. And because of the Ravenous fans out there, you might have some problems picking up those special cards. But the My Little Pony collectible card game is one you should consider. Definitely. Okay. I'll I'll certainly uh, find some bronies and sit down and try it with them sometime. (laughs) That'd be fun. Another horse game, since we're doubling up in the absence of our uh, friends who aren't here, uh, my other horse game is Cyclades that uh, the four of us played and reviewed uh, a few months back. It doesn't have a lot of horses in it. It has one horse in particular by the name of Pegasus. That's a game changer. That That is a powerful creature um, because the horse uh, Pegasus can, can pick up a character, can pick up uh, pieces from the board and move it anywhere else in the board. And, of course, with the power in Cyclades, you have the ability to keep that hero Normally, it would just be for one turn, but you could keep that hero throughout the whole game. So that's a powerful – some could say it's a, a game-breaker, but not if you're the one using it to win the game. <laughs> um, one of the best uses of a powerful horse in any of the games I've ever played. Wow, that's great. So since we talked about My Little Pony and we talked about this – not too long ago, the pretty, pretty smash-up expansion. So, you know, trying to bring your horses and ponies to modern gamers is a little difficult, but in this outstanding expansion, you're going to be able to play, let's say, a legally distinct version of, you know, Friendship is Magic with the, <laughs> with their race cards of their ponies, their Pegasus, and their unicorns. So... Add Pretty Pretty Smash Up to your collection, and then you will totally freak somebody out when you're playing zombies the entire time, and then drop a friendship power card on them. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to see the looks on the players' faces then. <laughs> that is our final round for this All week. All right, that sounds great. And now our crowdfunding update with Kick in the Habit. Hey there, kickers. On episode 25 of Kickin' the Habit, we're going to take a look at four campaigns that recently wrapped up, including El Luchador Fantastico Grande Tabletop Game, Epic Death Hardcore Mode, Spell Stealers, and What the Blank, and four brand new campaigns, including Mind, The Fall of Paradise, Game Designer's Toolkit 2015, Mine, All Mine, and Robots Love Ice Cream, The Card Game. So join us on December 10th, 2014, and I'll let you know if you should kick the game off, kick back and wait, or just kick it to the curb. All right, so that's everything for us on this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Check us out on Facebook, Board Game Geek, Twitter, or in one of the random locations that Daniel and Anthony happen to be board gaming. Because we want to hear from you. Do you love the podcast? Let us know. Go on to iTunes. Go on to Stitcher and rate us up so that we can get out all of this board gaming fun out to everybody out there. So until next time, this is Chris. This is Drew. This is Drew. (laughs) Are you sure? Yeah. There's only two of us. (laughs) This is Drew, period. And until next time.